If you've got a Bible, open to Psalm 115 is where we're at this morning, Psalm 115. If you're new with us, uh, again, I want to welcome you here uh, to Redeemer. When you walked in, there should have been a card that looks like this on the seat where you are seated. Um, Called connection card for us. It gives us uh, a place for you to fill out a little information about yourself, just so we can send you some information about us and be able to answer any questions you may have about us as a church. Uh, we promise not to show up on your doorstep unannounced or uninvited or uh, try and correspond with you at the most inopportune times of the day. Um, but all we wanted to be able to do is, is connect with you. Also, there's a place on there for prayer requests. If there's anything that we as a church, our elders, our staff um, can be in prayer with you or for you about, we would love to do so and come alongside of you and help bear some of those burdens that you're carrying right now with you. You can fill that out and drop it in the box at the kiosk located in the back of the room on your way out. Um, and we would love to be able to pray for you and with you about the things that are going on in your life. A couple of weeks ago, we opened up a new series called Worship and Wisdom for this summer. We've been looking at selected Psalms and Proverbs and they're in the Old Testament. And this morning we find ourselves in Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Uh, when we started this series, the thing, one of the things we said about the Psalms is that the psalmists are writing um, as individuals who are inhaling reality and they're exhaling theology. In other words, they're breathing in the world that's around them. They're taking it in. They're standing back. They're, 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 they're observing. They're seeing. They're feeling. They're sensing everything that's going on around them. And yet whenever they breathe out, they're breathing out ultimate reality, what is true about God what is true about themselves most fundamentally and ultimately. So they're breathing in reality, and all of us breathe in reality every day, don't we? Whenever you turn on the news, you breathe in reality. Whenever you go to the store, you breathe in reality. Whenever you interface with your spouse, if you're married, you breathe in reality. Whenever you go to school, students, you breathe in reality. Whenever you go to work, you breathe in reality. We, there's a real world in which we live. And we're constantly breathing in reality. So the psalmists come to us exhaling, breathing out theology to help us face the reality in which we are living. And so this, this summer we're working our way th through selected psalms and also through some of the Proverbs together as a church. And the psalm that we come to this morning is the first 11 verses of Psalm 115. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen for you as we read it together. Psalm 115 begins this way in verse 1. It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they have, do not make a sound in their throat. The psalmist says, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. 
right out of the gate in this psalm comes off the page to us one of the things that we're going to drill down into this morning. And that is the reality or the fact that as the psalmist exhales theology, he's inhaling reality, sees the world that's around him. But when he exhales theology, he recognizes that there is only one person on the face of the earth, one person who has ever existed or will ever exist. There is only one who is worthy of glory. This is, the tr- this, is the, this, is the, this is here in this psalm, and it's true across all the pages of the Bible. The Bible presents it this way, that there's only one who is worthy of glory. If you notice in verse 1, he says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, God. To your name be the glory. To your name give glory. Now, glory in the Hebrew literally means this. It means heaviness or weightiness or fatness in the Hebrew. That's what it's talking about. Right, um, And so whenever it talks about um, one of the kings in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, whenever uh, one, of the God's de- uh, one of Israel's deliverers is raised up to go in and overthrow some of Israel's oppressors, he goes in to King Ehud, and Ehud is sitting upon his throne, and his, they talk about how, how his, his glory, and it just meant that he was just a big dude, right? He was just heavy, weighty kind of guy. Right, and so, and with that literally being what that term means, coming out of that, it came to refer to those things or individuals in society, people, uh, places, or substances, or things that were significant, that had lots of weight and worth attached to them, or that had lots of substance and significance attached to them. There was a greatness about them. So, lots of kings were referred to as individuals who possessed glory, no matter how big they were, because they were considered as individuals who were great and glorious. So that's what the term glory means there in the Old Testament. It's a reference to weight and worth, to significance and substance, to greatness. And so we see this, it moves toward those individuals who are worthy of respect, someone who's honorable, someone who's impressive, someone who is worthy of note, right? They have lots of notoriety. They have a high reputation within society, but all throughout the Bible, one of the recurrent, recurring refrains is this, how easily it is for you and I as individuals to exchange the glory of God for the lesser glories of other things in our lives. And this psalm comes to remind us that as we breathe in the reality that, that all of us face of exchanging the glory of the great God for all of these lesser glories in our lives, it reminds us that there is only one who is worthy of it. There's only one who is worthy of, of glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. To your name. See, one of the things, this, one of the things we have to remember as we come to this song this morning is this, is that you and I, every morning when you wake up, one of the things you need to do is look in the mirror and you need to remind yourself that this is not about me. <laughs> it's not, my life is not about me. The psalmist says, not to us. As a community, not to me as an individual as a part of that community, God, but to you. My life is not about me, but so many of us, so oftentimes, we turn things, because sin has distorted our hearts to such a degree that we turn things into being about us all the time, don't we? Right? When we look in the mirror, it's not, not, not to us, it's to, to us, God, to us. To me be the glory. I want to be worthy. I want to be weighty. I want to be wealthy. I want to be one of substance. I want to be one of significance. I want to have notoriety. I want to have a high reputation. I want all men to respect me. I want to be one who possesses that kind of greatness and that kind of glory as opposed to saying, not to me, God, but to you. 
See, one of the fundamental flaws of the human heart as a result of sin is that we are what we might call ourselves glory thieves. By nature, all of us are glory thieves. Listen, we, my family and I went on vacation um, last weekend. We were out of town, coming back, traveling from Florida. Went with uh, my wife's family down there and enjoyed a time, some time on the beach. Now, every time we get ready to take a trip, we ask our kids, you know, go to the, the collection of DVDs down there and pick out some movies to bring along with you on that 13-hour car ride down to Florida. And so my son, who is infatuated and loves, and I love the fact that he loves C.S. Lewis. I love the fact that he loves the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and so he's got all the movies for the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, the only one that he brought with him this time was Prince Caspian. And so we watched Prince Caspian more times than I can count on the way to and from Florida. Uh, and, and so I heard it in the back seat going right uh, over and over and over again. We must have watched it three or four times between the trip there and the trip back. But at the end of Prince Caspian, if you've never read the book or seen the movie, I encourage you, go watch it. It's a great, it's a, or, or read it. It's a great book. It's a great movie. Uh, but what, what happens at the end of the movie is that after the great battle between what the Talmarines and the Narnians, uh, you got Aslan and a little mouse named Reepicheep. And anybody, you guys like Reepicheep fans, right? This little mouse, valiant warrior with his sword that wants to duel everyone and fight in every battle, Run, always running toward the chaos as opposed to away from it. Um, but he comes before Aslan at the end of the movie after the battle because in the battle he had lost his tail. He had lost his tail. And so he becomes before Aslan, and he, this is what he says at the end of the movie. He says, I regret that I must withdraw. In other words, I can't fight anymore. I can't be a part of the army any longer. I can't be a part of the mission. He says, for a tail is the honor and the glory of a mouse. To which Aslan looks into his eyes and he replies with these words. He says, I wonder, friend, if you do not think too much about your own honor. And Aslan, the great king, Jesus figure in the stories, looks at him and says, I wonder often if you do not think too much of your own glory, of your own honor, of your own prestige, of your own notoriety, of your own reputation, of your own impressiveness, of your own substance, of your own heaviness in the world. See, by nature, all of us are glory thieves. All of us. You see this in the Bible, you see it throughout human history, and you see it in our lives. On the very opening pages of the story of the Bible in Genesis, you find our first parents. And as they're tempted by the serpent, they're tempted to what? To take and eat of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they may what? Become like God, knowing good from evil. So our first parents, their temptation wasn't, was, was to be like God, to put themselves in the position of God, to determine for themselves what is right and wrong, to know the difference between good and evil. They wanted the weightiness that God had. They wanted the significance that God had. They wanted the worth that God had. So they put themselves in his position. And all throughout human history, we have done the same. In fact, to such a degree that there's even individuals in human history, and maybe even in our culture in time and day, this today, who would commit acts of violence, who would commit deeds, who would commit crimes in order to gain notoriety for themselves. In fact, we have a term that's been coined for that. It's called herostratic fame or notoriety, and it comes from a man in the, in the 350 B.C. in Greece. His name was Herostratus, and 
Sutras goes into the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and he sets it on fire in order to gain notoriety for himself. He wanted to be remembered. He didn't want to be forgotten on the pages of history. He wanted to have one, at least one act that would cause historians and cultures and peoples to remember him forever. And so he goes in and he sets the temple on fire and burns it. And that's herostratic fame. Individuals who commit crimes for the sake of the notoriety it might bring to them. See, we are all glory thieves in human history. And there's, there's, in fact, there's even companies today that capitalize on that desire that each of us have to be our own gods, to put ourselves in that position, to have the notoriety, substance, significance, weight, worth, glory, and greatness that our hearts are longing for. There was a company started in Austin several years back called Celeb for a Day. Some of you may have heard of this. Celeb for a Day. And so what they do is they have their own little teams of photographers like paparazzi and they follow you around, you and your little entourage, like all your buddies, right? all your BFFs, you all kind of pile in the car, you go to restaurants or clubs or wherever it is that you're going, parks, and they follow you around, kind of hiding in the bushes, taking pictures of you. And so at the end of your day, as you pay for their, their services, at the end of the day, you get your own magazine, right? celebrity magazine with, your face, with yourself and your friends on the cover. Right? Because we're so hungry for that notoriety that that company started in Austin and since spread to L.A. and New York and across the nation. Because we as a people are glory thieves. We want the notoriety. That's why we're so fascinated with celebrity. Right? That's why so many of us are fat, like on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook. We're all following all these celebrities who have had notoriety in the culture. Why? Because we're, we're so hungry for glory that we just want to even be close to people who have it. And so that's why you see people who are like, man, they run into somebody famous and they're like going over next to them, like putting their arm around them, selfie time, right? And then blast it out across all their social media feeds. Why? Because we're so hungry for glory that just to even be in the presence of someone that we feel like has it gives us a little bit of a lift. Celeb for a day. There's actually another company called Clout.com. And Clout.com um, measures your social media clout. And so what it does, it takes a look at, it kind of has algorithms that measures all of your posts that you make on Facebook or that you make on Twitter or that you make on Instagram. And it measures the significance of those posts, how viral they went, uh, the people who saw them, how many shares they got, how many likes they got, how many little hearts down there at the bottom or little crying faces now down at the bottom, how many people interacted with them, and it measures all that up, and it calculates a score for you, and it sends you your clout score every morning so you can start your day with a picture of how significant and weighty you are in the social media world. And people subscribe to these services because they're glory thieves. We all want to feel like we matter. We all want to feel like there, there's a weightiness about us that will not away whenever our body is laid in the grave. We are all glory thieves. And the, the, we're, we're trying to smash and grab the glory of God for ourselves. And the psalmist says, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. And listen, the primary way that you and I go about trying to achieve glory for ourselves is through the exchange of the glory of God for that of lesser gods. 
In fact, we're told that in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, in verses 22 and 23, Paul writes these words. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says what you've, what you've done, essentially, what we've done as humanity, we've exchanged the glory of God, of the only God, of the only King, of the only Almighty, the Sovereign who's in his temple and on his throne. We've exchanged his glory for the glory of these lesser things, of these lesser peoples. And we've constructed images for ourselves, he says, in, the, in all kinds of different forms and fashions. See, an idol is not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, oftentimes they were little statues or false gods that you might have constructed out of gold or silver. We see there in the text in Psalm 115. But an idol is anything that you construct and move to the center of your life and make it central to your identity. Make it central to your happiness. Make it central to your joy. So that if you have it, everything is good. And if you lose it, everything is bad. If you have it, everything can stay held together in your life. And when you lose it, everything comes apart in your life. That's what an idol is. Whether it's a little statue on your mantle or not, that's what an idol is. And if your heart is wrapped up in the worship of an idol, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 115, you're looking for something dead to give you life. You're looking for something that is dead to give you life. Look at what he says in the text. Go back to Psalm 115 if you got it open. In Psalm 115, in, verses, uh, in, in verse, verses 4 and following, listen to what he says. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands, something that they have constructed for themselves, something that they have formed in an image. But he says, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. What's he saying by all that? He's saying this, is that whatever it is that you construct and move to the center of your life that shifts your identity away from the God who has formed you in his image is ultimately something that you are looking to to give you life that in and of itself is actually dead. He says they have ears, but they don't hear. They have mouths, but don't speak. What's he saying by all that? That they are lifeless, that they are impotent, that they are powerless, that they cannot provide what they promise to us. And whether they are a statue that we have on our mantle or something that our hearts, something we've made with our hands or something that we've made with our hearts, that we've moved to the center of our lives, we've, we've exchanged the glory of the one God for the glory, the weight, significance, worth, greatness of these lesser gods. And we talked about this, we've been talking about this for a while now as we've kind of touched in different areas of life with regards to idolatry. But I want to remind you of some of the things that we tend to exchange oftentimes for the glory of God in our lives. Oftentimes we exchange things like uh, an, an idol can be anything we said, but so oftentimes an idol for some of us may be like our body image. Or maybe material possessions that we own. Or maybe leisure that we enjoy. It could be any of those things. But it could also be deeper things of the heart like power and having influence with people. We feel right and things feel right in the world when we have influence. Or it could be control. Things feel right in the world when things are ordered. Or it could be approval. Things feel right in the world when people accept us and affirm us. Or it could be uh, comfort. Things feel right in the world whenever we're not, when the kind of rhythms of our lives aren't disrupted by anything. Or it could be any of those things that kind of 
trickles down to the bottom of our hearts and we begin to build our lives on them and wrap our identities around them. We're exchanging the glory of the God for the glory of a God. But I want you to notice what he says in the text. He says, those who trust in them, in verse 8, he says, become like them. Those who make them and trust in them, they become like them. So here's what that looks like for you and I. Listen, if you, if you trust in body image, right? right? We said before, there's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. But if you trust in your body image in order to, for everything to be right in your world, right? Then, then you're going you're gonna to become like that. And so what does that mean? That means that you're going to spend all of your time, all of your resources, all of your energy pursuing a particular body image. You're going to give yourself over to it. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna bow down at the altar of the gym and the tanning salon, right? right? And so you're going to have, you're going you're gonna to be in the gym, you know, eight hours a day and flexing in front of the mirror. You're going to be laying there under that little infrared light in the tanning bed, just kind of soaking up all that, whatever that is. Um, or you're going to be out by the pool, right, wherever it is. You're going to be able to, working on this body image. And you're going to look like what you're worshiping. Same thing with materialism. If you've given your life over to possessions or promotions or positions, then you're going to sacrifice all kinds of things in worship of the next level, next rung of your vocation as you climb the ladder. Or you're going to give yourself over to the massive amounts of credit card debt in order to accumulate and acquire possessions that you think are going to make everything right in your world. I've said it before. That massive amounts of credit card debt on things like shoes and clothes and countertops and cabinets. That is not just poor money management. That is worship. That is worship. That is seeking glory in something. I'll be significant if I had that house of my dreams. I'll be weighty. Nothing can, nothing can shake me if I've got the perfect job or I drive the right car. Or nothing can shake me if my life is in order and I've got control of everything. Nothing can shake me if people accept me and approve of me. Nothing can shake me if I've got influence and power in people's lives and they listen to me and they come to me for counsel and guidance. Nothing can shake me if nothing disrupts the equilibrium of my life and I can just maintain comfort on smooth seas for the rest of my life. Nothing can shake me. So I pursue those things at all costs. And part of what it means that you become like them as well is this, is that you begin to value others and treat others on the basis of those things. In other words, you size people up on the basis of their body image if you're worshiping body image. right? So you determine their value on the basis of their tan or the basis of their biceps. Right? Or the basis of their waistline. You determine their value on the basis of what you're worshiping. So you bow down to this God of body image and you look out around other people and you see somebody that comes in that doesn't fit your particular idea of what an ideal body image is and you don't pursue them in relationship. You, you size them up on the basis of what they look like externally. How their makeup is that morning. How their hair was fixed that day. What dress they had on. Did it come, what store did it come from? Did they look like you? Did they dress like you? You begin to size people up and assign them value on the basis of what they look like externally. Same thing with material possessions. You size people up on the basis of what they drive in the neighborhood in which they live. The kind of countertops they have, the kind of cabinets they have, what kind of tile they put down. You begin to size people up. Or you begin to size people up on the basis of whether or not they're going to contribute to your endless incessant need for approval 
And if anybody pushes back against you, you withdraw away from them. See, it determines how you treat people. There's so many things that become idols in our lives. And we begin to look like them. Those who make them and trust in them begin to look like them. But listen, with everything that's going on in the world around us now, I want to, I want to push on one area this morning that I haven't really pushed on before here. And I think it's an area that, that we need to begin to talk more about. And that's the area of ethnicity. It's the area of ethnicity. Listen, there, there are many individuals within our culture, whether it be in the Dallas area or across our nation, who have way too much of their identity tied up in their ethnicity. Way too much of their identity tied up in their ethnicity. And for them, right, for them, they begin to treat other people around them on the basis of whether they look like them, whether they talk like them, whether the pigment of their skin is the same as theirs is. And listen, it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking thing to see that we've, when, we, when people say, not, not to you, God, not to you, but to me be the glory. And the way that they find glory and weight and worth and significance is just to associate themselves with individuals whose skin color is the same as theirs, whose nationality is the same as theirs, whose ethnicity is the same as theirs, whose socioeconomic background is the same as theirs. You see, so much, listen, so much of the pain and heartache in our lives that we go through as individuals, as a community of people, as a church and as a nation, so much of that is tied up in the fact that we are glory thieves. And we have way too much of our identity invested in our ethnicity. And listen, this happens with both ethnic minorities and ethnic majorities on both ends of the spectrum. Look, in Rockwall County, I did a little research this week. In Rockwall County, uh, we live in a very um, racially homogenized community. What I mean by that is the majority of people who call Rockwall County home are white. Caucasian individuals. 88% of Rockwall County is Caucasian, is white. Another 6.3% of Rockwall County is African American. Another 2.9 or 0.8%, I'm sorry, of Rockwall County is American Indian. 2.9% of Rockwall County is Asian. 17% of Rockwall County is Hispanic. 1.9% interracial, and there's a 0.1% of Native Hawaiians out there. But listen, we live in a very racially homogenized community. And so as a result, here's what happens for many of us. is We begin to think more Caucasian than we do Christian about people. We begin to think more Caucasian than we do Christian about individuals who are around us. People who don't look like us. And so as, as the ethnic majority within our particular community, we begin to think more as a group think as the majority of white people might think. Or if you go into areas where there's, lots of, there's more ethnic minorities who make up the populace, then they might have more of a, of a black think or an Asian think or an Indian think about the way life is, about the way world, the world should work, about how people should be treated. But listen, listen, when you wrap too much of your identity up in your ethnicity, you begin to value people on the basis of their skin color. You begin to treat people on the basis of their skin color. You don't listen to people on the basis of their skin color. One of the ways that you know you have too much of your identity wrapped up in your ethnicity is this. 
is that whenever you come across an individual who looks different than you do, different nationality, different ethnicity, different race, do you invest as much time in getting to know that individual as whenever you walk across another individual who's Caucasian? Do you invite individuals who are not non-white residents of Rockwall County that you meet to Redeemer? Or do you automatically go, they're not going to like the music. They're not going to like the preaching. That latter part's probably true. Uh, like, do, do, do you automatically dismiss that and say, well, there's, there's no other people like them there, so I'm not going to invite them. You know what, if, if, that's, if that's the first response of your heart and of your mind, you may have too much of your identity as a, which should be wrapped up in, in, in Christ and who he is and what he's done, maybe wrapped up in your ethnicity. Because you're not even giving them an opportunity to say no. <laughs> or you're not even giving them an opportunity to visit and see what God's doing here and say, I, I wanna be a part of that or I don't wanna be a part of that. You're making the decision for them. Right, when you run across someone who looks differently than, than you in the community, do you press into them relationally? Or do you just kind of give them the time of day and kind of be cordial and nice to them, but you think, Mom, I can never really get close to them because they look differently than I do? Or they talk differently than I do? They have a different background than I do? You may have too much of your identity wrapped up in your ethnicity. You may be thinking too Caucasian and not enough Christian. Listen, when you hear... One final thing on this point before we move on. When you hear the, the term Black Lives Matter, when you hear that term in the media, when you see it on social media, when you hear it across news channels, when you hear people talking about it within conversations around you, is what's, what's the first thing that rises in your heart whenever you hear that term? You hear that phrase. Is it a disdain? That someone would actually use that language to speak about African Americans within our community or within our nation? Is it a disdain for that? Or can you say, you know what? Even though I may not agree with all their positions, like I can't affirm their position on same-sex marriage, I can't affirm their position on transgender issues, I can't affirm their position on, I can agree with that premise that yes, yes, black lives do matter. Yes, they do. Is that the first thing that rises in your heart? Or is the first thing that rises in your heart a defense mechanism that want to push people away and want to argue and not sit and listen to how people feel about what's been taking place all around us? If that's the first thing that rises in your heart, you may have too much of your identity wrapped up in your ethnicity. And it may be a lifeless Little G God that is impotent and powerless to save you. No matter how many people you surround yourself with. We are all glory thieves. And we try and steal it through our idols. As we close this morning... I want, to, I want to encourage you in one way. I want to encourage you to do this. I want to encourage you to forsake your idols. But listen, the only way that you're able to forsake your idols, the only way I'm able to forsake my idols, is not just to leave them behind, but to exchange them. 
no matter what they are, if their body image, if their materialism, if their ethnicity, if they're a source idols underneath in your heart of control, of power, of approval, of comfort. Like the only way to walk away from those idols is not just to say, you know what, I'm not gonna be, have all my ethnicity or identity tied up my ethnicity anymore. I'm not gonna be, have all of my, my, uh, my, my worship and my glory tied up in my comfort or my approval any longer. I'm not gonna have all of my significance or substance tied up in my body image or my possessions any longer. I'm not gonna do that. Listen, the only way that you can forsake your idols is to exchange them. It's to exchange them. It's the only way that it happens. Exchange, you gotta exchange those gods that are seen, those idols that are seen and impotent and lifeless for the God that is unseen, powerful, and life-giving. You gotta make an exchange there. There's an old Puritan preacher named Thomas Chalmers who talked about how there's, there's no way that you can just walk away from the, the gods that you have been giving your heart over to all of your life. He says, there's no idol that you can just walk away from. And here's why, because the human heart was constructed in such a way that it has to have something to cling to, has to have something to hold on to, has to have something to rejoice in, has to have something to, have, to find its significance in. So you can't just drop those things and walk away from them. You have to turn towards something else. The only thing that can eradicate idolatry in the human heart is the worship of the one true God. And listen, I want to tell you this morning that he's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your worship. And here's why. Here's why. Because he's shown himself to be worthy of your trust. In fact, you read further down in the text, it says that God, it says to Israel, for, for Israel to trust in the Lord, for Aaron to trust in the Lord, for all the people of God to trust in the Lord. And that word Lord is in all caps. It's the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. And listen, there's many places in the Old Testament that God makes and keeps his covenant with his people. But the primary place that you see God making and keeping his covenant with his people to bless them is at the cross. When you blow this up biblically, you see across the pages of Scripture the primary place that God shows up to be Israel's and his people's help it says there in verses 9 through 11, their help and their shield, their protector and defender, the one who would fight for them. The primary place he shows himself to be that is at the cross in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Colossians, that word help there in the Hebrew literally means this, that it gives God's divine assistance, that he would show up and give divine assistance. And oftentimes it referred to a military assistance, that God would fight for his people, that he would fight for them. And in fact, Paul tells us in the book of Colossians that God indeed has done so. That he has fought for his people. That he has disarmed the rulers and the principalities through the cross, putting them to open shame so that you might be free no longer to find all of your identity tied up in your marital status or all your identity tied up in your ethnicity or all your identity tied up in your comfort or your control or your power or your, your, your influence or your approval or what you look like on the outside to other people who may see you. God has disarmed those things, put them to shame at the cross. At the cross, you see the, the great almighty king who is the one who possesses all power laying it down to serve you. To serve you. 
and fight for you. There's many places in the Old Testament in verse 1 where God demonstrates his steadfast love and faithfulness, but there is no place in the Old Testament or in all the Bible more so that he shows his steadfast love and faithfulness than at the cross as well. God showed he was committed to love you even to his own death. And so you exchange these lifeless idols that cannot provide what they promise for the one true God who's able to give life. I'll tell you what it looks like in my life, and the band's gonna come, and they're gonna lead us in a couple of songs. We're gonna come to the Lord's table together. I don't know what this may look like in your life, but I'll tell you what it looks like in mine. Listen, for those of you who, who don't know, who've never served in any kind of ministry capacity before, listen, for those who serve in ministry, as a pastor of this church, Throughout my life, there has been a quest for glory. Throughout my life, I've longed to be weighty and recognized, to have a reputation to be someone of notoriety. Throughout my life, I've longed for that. And I didn't realize how deeply rooted that was in my heart until about six months ago. And God began to surface some of that. And listen, that's, that's never fun. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and put that, go on record saying that. It's never fun when God begins to surface that in your heart. And I wrestled through that. In fact, there's many church planters, there's pastors, worship leaders, youth pastors, all kinds of people who serve in adult education ministries, who serve um, even behind the scenes coordinating things. There's all kinds of people who are involved in ministry who want some kind of notoriety. They want respect from other people. It's part of, part of the way that their fallen heart is bent. And as God began to surface some of that, I had, to, I had to face a decision. Would I continue to seek my own glory? Or would I exchange it for the glory of the one who sought me? Would I continue to seek my own glory? Or would I exchange it for the glory of the one who sought me? So there's many people who serve in ministry who want a platform. They want to be up in front of a bunch of people. They want people to like them. They want people to be around them. They want to have influence in people's lives. Listen, I'm, some of you probably were like, man, you're more messed up than I ever thought you were. And that's true. That's why, that's why every week I get up here and I tell you that, that you need Jesus and so do I. And keep pointing you back to him. He's the only one who could put our broken hearts and souls back together. But I, so I, fa- I had to face a decision. Would I continue to pursue my own glory or exchange it for the glory of the one who sought me? And I came across a message by an individual at a conference several months back who talked about exchanging the glory of the platform for that of the elder's chair. Exchanging the glory of the platform and celebrity Notoriety for that of the elder's chair. In other words, exchanging what I've constructed for myself to be success in ministry for what God defines as success in ministry. What we often define for ourselves as success in ministry is that we would have a big church. There'd be tons of people who would come. 
and the budget would grow and the buildings would be built and all those things would happen. That would be success in ministry. But what God defines success in ministry in the New Testament is there will be men who be raised up to be faithful shepherds, under shepherds, under Jesus' lordship and headship, who would come alongside people and would disciple them and make disciple-making disciples. No matter how big the gathering grows, no matter how large the buildings are built, no matter how big the budget swells. And so I I had to come face to face with my idol of seeking notoriety for myself, seeking glory for myself, or seeking the glory of the one who sought me. And I'm still in that process of exchanging those. I wake up every morning, I have to look in the mirror and say, it's not about you. It's not about you. I don't know what your idol is. I don't know what lifeless thing you are looking to to give you life. But I want to appeal to you as your pastor this morning that you would exchange your glory for the glory of the one who sought you. If you're not a Christian in the room this morning, what that means for you is this. What that means for you is this, is that that you stop trying to define the purpose for your life on your own. That you turn from your sin and you turn to trust and treasure Jesus Christ above all things. That you confess your sin, that you turn away from it, and you put your faith in him and him alone to save you. And to bring you into relationship with God. Who is the one who is able to give life. If you are a Christian in the room this morning. If you are a Christian in the room this morning, maybe it means that you do some self-examination this week with the gospel open before your eyes to see the one who sought you, who has come to your rescue, who has come to your aid, who has come to be your shield to defend you, to be your help and to fight for you. Disarming all of those powers and principalities at the cross and that you lay aside whatever lifeless thing you've been looking to, to give you joy, to give you substance, to give you weight, to give you worth. And you find that to be in God and God alone. And that you wake up every morning and you say, it's not about me pursuing my glory through these means. It's about him and his glory. I want to live my life for that. It's not, easy. It's not, not an easy prospect. But I pray that we as a church will be a people that wake up every morning and say, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory. Would you pray with me?